crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when the people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Thank you very much for bringing that reading to us. Even though we had it on the screen, and it probably will stay on the screen, can I encourage you to find a Bible and to have it open in front of you? Uh, page 968 in the Church Bible, 968. We're starting in the evening, uh, evenings this term to look at this piece of teaching, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here last week, I mentioned a few bits of it. It's one of the most famous pieces of human oratory skill, really, that the world has ever seen. You may think of great speeches such as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, or the rousing Winston Churchill wartime radio broadcast that galvanized a nation to fight against evil powers. And all of those have had great effect but no piece of human rhetoric, no speech, no sermon has had greater effect in human history than actually this one, the Sermon on the Mount. It's been reckoned by legal historians that a large fraction of our current law books are based directly off the teaching that is found here. That when this country was starting to formalise the way things should be done and the laws that should be in place, the first place, the first place they looked here to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And as we look through it over the next few term, uh, next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what he says to us personally as a community here at St. Jude's. We've entitled this uh, particular first talk The Radical Life or Radical Living, because what he describes here as we look at it is very radical. It's countercultural, it's not a normal way of life. But this way of life creates great change in the world, stands out as a witness, a sultan light that shows the world what Jesus looks like. Before we uh, dig into it, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I pray now that by the power of your spirit you would speak to us, speak to us individually, and speak to us as a community. May our lives rightly reflect your ways, and may you teach us them afresh tonight. Amen. Well, I don't know if you noticed, uh, a couple of years ago on the internet, if you were so uh, inclined to spend your time, there was a certain meme or what you might describe as an image that was floating around uh, the cyberspace sphere. And it was of various American families who decided to write their home rules, the family rules, up on their dining room walls. And they decided to change the family rules. They weren't going to talk about really boring things like who does the dishes and who puts the bins out, and what you should do after dinner, and asking to leave the table. Actually, they decided that they were going to put up on the walls what they were aiming to be like as a family. And one of the most cheesy set that was going around, yeah, you might recognise some of these, uh, was this. In this home, we laugh loudly. We make mistakes. We say, I'm so sorry. We are patient we cherish friends, we honour family, we are grateful, we share, we love deeply. It's a bit cheesy, it's a bit American, but actually I found it strangely powerful. But here are families just saying this is what we aim to be. We're not about the rules as such. We're about what's behind them, the attitudes that we want to live out as family together. And I want to begin with that because that is at heart what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's like a set of home rules, of family rules, attitudes and ways to live of doing life together. The context of this sermon is of Jesus pronouncing the kingdom of God, going around all his home region of Galilee and healing the sick, casting out demons and seeing the most amazing things happen. And very quickly... He gains a following. The crowds start following him in increasing number day by day. And at the beginning of our chapter, it says, he saw the crowds, verse 1. And when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. See, Jesus looks out at the crowds, probably not for the first time, but he realises now is the time to sit down and to try and bring some kind of order to this chaos that's behind him. This huge rabble of people that have gathered from across the countryside. He decides now is the time to say a few things, to teach them God's ways. And the aim of his teaching is twofold. Firstly, it's to sort the wheat from the chaff. He wants true disciples, not just those that are there for the novelty factor. So you'll find that in the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching is tough. 
It's really tough, actually. If you were trying to gain a following, you wouldn't teach this kind of teaching because it's at such a high level. But he wants to set the bar high. He knows that, actually, he wants true disciples, not those that are there for the thrill factor. And secondly, he knows that as he teaches this set of wonderful and profound instructions and words and attitude, something will form a community of disciples that will look distinctly different to everything else in the world. And at the end of our reading, he describes what this community will look like. He describes them as salt and light. That's the effect that this new community is going to have. He says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, in the context of the time, salt had three main functions. It was to add taste, to preserve, and to purify. It would add taste to food, it would preserve food, and it would purify food. And by saying that they are going to be, or they are, the salt of the earth, he's saying all three apply to you. That in a sense, you get to be the taste of God to a waiting world, a taste of the kingdom. That in a sense, you're going to preserve that you're going to see God's moral law that was given to man, that's written on people's hearts, preserved. You're going to fight the good fight to see good prevail over evil. And you're going to purify. You're going to see holiness break out, sin demolished. You're going to see evil flee. And you're going to see the kingdom of God come. Then he uses another metaphor. He calls them the light of the world. And you're not supposed to hide that away. You'll let it shine that actually men may see the good works that you are doing, and glorify, it says, your Father in heaven. That actually by the things that they do as a community, people will see there's something completely different going on here. That there's something different at work. And that light would bring light to other people's lives and make it known exactly who is in charge, what's going on. That there is a Father in heaven coordinating all of this. Well, that's all in way of introduction because I want to ask the question well how do we get there what is it about salt and light that this community had that made such a difference then that could potentially make a difference now how did they get there in the first generation of Christians and how can we we know that they got there as the first generation of Christians because records of the early church suggest that what Jesus says here came true, that they had such countercultural effect, this new community that was drawn out of the crowds, that they turned the world upside down. There's a very famous example of uh, this in the second century, when a Roman lawyer called Aristides was sent by Emperor Hadrian, the emperor at the time, to explore what these new Christians believed. He had heard about them. He'd seen people become Christians in his court, but he wasn't quite sure what to make of them. So he sent an expert lawyer out who actually came back with the following report. Christians love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If a man has something, he gives freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and are happy, as though he were a real brother. If they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of their redeemer, 
They give him all that he needs. If it's possible, they bail him out. If one of them is poor and there isn't enough food to go around, they fast several days to give him the food he needs. Every morning and every hour they thank and praise God for his loving kindness towards them. Because of them flows forth all the beauty that there is in the world. But the good deeds that they do, they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude, but they take care that no one shall perceive them. This is really a new kind of person. There is something divine in them. It's really challenging. That's what this new community ended up looking like. That's the effect that they had. And that's what we long to see here at St. Jude's. You'll know from Fan mentioning it earlier that our vision for the church is Jesus' love transforming lives from the heart of South Sea. That right from here, in our lives together, we might see a similar effect going on in the modern age of people's lives being transformed, of love being shed abroad. And we've seen glimpses of that. It was great to see Friday Fridge, a, a glimpse of what that looks like as people's lives are transformed by love. And there are other glimpses of it, but we all know that there's so much further to go. And the question that I want to ask is, well, what's at the heart of the power that Jesus suggests this community is going to have and the power that it did have in that first few centuries and at the heart I want to suggest the answer is what we've missed so far in the reading what is often called the beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes that he calls this community to live out because if they live these attitudes out they will see remarkable effects they will see something brand new breaking forth and Jesus calls them to a very high level, to a high bow, to try and live these together in life. And we're going to look into them for the majority of what time we have together. And there are two things, really, that I want to bring out about these Beatitudes. You've probably heard lots of teaching on them in the past. Uh, I hope there's something fresh here for us as we dig into them. Because actually, if we start to live these out ourselves... Well, the promise of Scripture is that we will see the similar things going on here in South Sea. We're no different, God is no different, and the things he can do are no different. So the first thing that I want to bring out is that these beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes, are God's ancient but future blessings. They're ancient, they're from the past, but they're for the future and for our blessing. This week I happened to uh, be reading a, a Christian blog that pointed me towards an article in the Washington Post. And this article was all about what Christians in their 20s and 30s, the so-called millennials, wanted from church. And it asked all kinds of questions of all kinds of people, taking a survey across America. And probably the scene isn't very similar, isn't too dissimilar to here actually. And they all said one thing resoundingly. We don't really care about the actual style as much as the content. And one uh, blogger wrote this. I want a service that is not sensational, flashy, or even particularly relevant. I can be entertained anywhere. At church, I do not want to be entertained I do not want to be the target of anyone's marketing. I want to be asked to participate 
in the life of an ancient future community. Well, that was really powerful. Here's someone that's got it. Don't care about all the jazz. Sometimes it is literally jazz. Don't care about that. What I care about is this special community that's got something special about it. It's ancient in formation, but it's future in orientation. It's looking ahead. And what Jesus describes in these Beatitudes is exactly that. They're ancient ways of living. The old ways are sometimes the best ways. But they bring future blessing. Because each and every one of them, as they speak about the blessing that's to come through living them, speak about the blessing that comes now, yes, but primarily in the future. That our faith is a faith that's fixed on an end goal of a day to come where God will make all things new. And that living in light of that goal means that these things will be blessings to us. That God really does save the best till last. The best is yet to come. And so I'm going to dig into a few of them so that we can see this. If you look at the very first one, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven poor in spirit. Jesus says that those who are aware of their spiritual poverty, who are aware of their great need for God, are blessed because they'll get the kingdom of heaven, everything that God promises for the future. It's the spiritually proud who think that they can be okay with God by their own religious efforts. But it's only those that know that they desperately need him, who are hungry for him, who know that they're spiritually empty, that will, in the end, indeed, get to be with him. The kingdom to come and the kingdom in the presence. I think the best illustration of this is one that Jesus himself gave. He spoke a parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector, who were both in the temple. And though both trying to come before God in their own way, the Pharisee, who's a religious guy, says this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, who is despised in that culture, looks down at the form, it says it beats his breast as a sign of woe, and cries out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? He says, this man is the one that was justified. That this is the man that got it. This is the person that gets to get into the kingdom. The one who is aware of his own great spiritual poverty. He was poor in spirit. And God shows mercy. And can I encourage us to have that attitude as well as a community? Some of us can have been around the Christian faith for many years. Some of us were raised in it. Some of us came to it later in life. But after a while, it's so easy to think too much of ourselves, our attainment, our understanding, our knowledge. But when push comes to shove, the baseline way of living is to be poor in spirit, to realise we've got nothing, absolutely nothing in ourselves. But with him, we've got everything. With him, we've got everything. And that will lead to blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next one that I want to look at. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth, the third one. And this describes an attitude that's the very opposite of aggression. It's the attitude that takes the gentle way, that doesn't become violent, that doesn't try to swindle or domineer, but takes the humble path. In the context of the mighty Roman Empire that ruled much of the known world at the time, they would have thought that actually aggression and violence are the attitudes that are blessed. Blessed are the aggressive, for they will inherit the earth. But ultimately, it and every grand empire since fell and has fallen. And in the end, there's only going to be one kingdom that stands at the end of time, and that is the kingdom of God. And to enter into that kingdom requires meekness. It requires humbling ourselves and realising that we can't do it through our own aggressive strategies, our own conquering attitude. It takes God to do it. It takes him to lead us, to guide us, to be our strength and weakness, to be the one who is our redeemer and our saviour. It isn't us, it's him. And for us today, meekness is a very hard attitude to try and achieve. We know it took Moses 40 years in the desert to get there. He was originally, as a young guy, an aggressive guy who tried to solve problems by the fist and killing people. And God had to take him off and work on him for 40 years. But then it describes in the Bible that he became the meekest man on the whole face of the planet Earth because God had changed his heart from aggression to meekness. And for us today, we, we do live in a doggy dog world where aggression is often rewarded. In businesses, in the normal run of life, aggression seems to be the way forward. I don't know if you've seen or read the uh, brilliant book called Cloud Atlas that interweaves a portrayal of a generational pattern that works out through many historical ages. And in that book, the key phrase for each age is simply, the weak are meat and the strong do eat. The, the weak are meat and the strong eat. Why be meek? They just get trodden on. They just get eaten up by the strong. Well, that's true if we're living for the just here and now. That may well happen if we choose meekness. But we don't live for the here and now. We know that meekness in the end will have its reward, that we get to be in the kingdom, and that in the end all aggression, all striving will fall away, and the kingdom of God will be there, and we get to inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The next one, zooming down to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Again, this requires complete trust that there is a time ahead where things will be different. Where being in the kingdom means that because you've been shown mercy, you are able to give mercy to others. That on the day of judgment, you will be shown mercy. That each and every one of us here has done a lot of stuff that's wrong. Some more than others, that's true. But in the grand scheme of things, we've all messed up. 
But Jesus at the cross dies for us. We know this. This is central to our faith. And it means that on that day we shall receive mercy. We won't get what we deserve because he got what we deserve at the cross. And if that is true, well, that means that we are freed in the here and now to show mercy to others. There's no sense in which we have any right not to do that. And there will be blessing in that. Showing mercy keeps us in that place of receiving God's mercy and ultimately will keep us in that place where we shall receive mercy on that day. And again, this is a really hard attitude for us to live out. We live in a world that often doesn't show any mercy. It is the first to point the finger, the first to get revenge. I came across this uh, very powerful and worrying uh, quote from someone called Carl Lagerfeld, who used to be the CEO of Chanel. Anyone here wearing any Chanel at the moment or have some at home? No one's going to admit that. But he was a very powerful guy in the fashion industry, and he once said this, I take a physical pleasure in revenge, often in a vicious way. I know that revenge is mean and horrible, but I see no reason why I should not do something back to somebody if they have done something bad to me. When people think that all is forgotten, I pull the chair away, maybe ten years later, This is a good thing. It warns people, do not be nasty to me, as in later circumstances, I can be nastier to you. They do not even know it is me who in the end kills them. I'm very dangerous for that. Do not touch me. I will most definitely touch you. I don't think many people are quite as bad as that. But it typifies the attitude that often is out there. No mercy, only revenge. Jesus says, no, (laughs) the very opposite. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May we be marked by mercy to one another and to those whom we meet. And then at the end of the Beatitudes, let me draw out the last two. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in a similar way, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. These are two Beatitudes that in one sense can be counted the same type. Blessing for suffering, for doing what is right, and ultimately blessing for suffering, for following Jesus. And Jesus says to both of these things, there will be reward. There will be blessing because of these things. That if you are suffering persecution because you're doing the right thing, it shows in the end that you're on the right track. It shows that you're walking on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Yours really is the kingdom of heaven. You can be assured it's to come. And if you're suffering for me, Jesus says, personally, And he knows that's going to come to a number of them. He says, there is such a great reward ahead. You won't see it in this lifetime. This lifetime might be harder for you than anyone else. But in the lifetime to come, you have no idea. 
You have no idea what's to come. The blessings and the reward that I'm going to give to you. The reward of myself given fully to you. The reward of enjoying eternal life at my side. You're going to be blessed. And we know that this attitude, this beautiful attitude, was at the heart why so many in those first couple of Christian centuries found the Christians to be so winsome, so attractive, so different, that the more that you try to persecute them and snuff them out and stamp on them, the more they just shone, the more that they just endured, the more they stayed faithful to their saviour. And as they did that, Christian community expanded. Goodbye, Anne. Love to have you with us. This is why the early church father, Onaeus, famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That actually this attitude of enjoying persecution and righteousness with a smile almost, because of what's to come, makes all the difference. And for us here today, we also are to expect these things. The Bible makes it very clear that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It is actually a promise of Scripture on the same level as any other promise of Scripture. That if you seek to lead a godly life, you're going to suffer for Jesus. You're not to be surprised by it, actually. And if you're not suffering for Jesus, well, that asks questions, actually, about your own discipleship. Conversely, this is a hallmark of Christian faith. But just because it's going to be there, that doesn't mean we can lose heart. Because Jesus says very clearly that we don't live just for this age. We're that ancient future community that lives for that time to come. There's going to be such great reward for those people that snub you in the workplace, for the friends that reject you, that you lose, for the family that despise you behind your backs, that you know about, for some of you that have been threatened because of the faith. There is such great reward ahead. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these things, all these attitudes, beautiful attitudes, are to be at the heart of who we are. I encourage you, maybe this week, to go away and maybe for each day of the week, take one of them and say, I'm going to try and live this out today. Why don't you tomorrow, Monday, try living out poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. Try on Tuesday to be those who mourn with others mourning over the state of the world. Try on Wednesday to be one who is meek. Have a go. See what it does. See the effect it has on the people around you. These blessings that God promises in his word. Well, that was the first thing. These beatitudes are God's ancient but future blessings. The second thing that I want to draw out very briefly now is that these beatitudes depend on Jesus, the beautiful one. They hinge on him. It's going a bit deeper. Knowing that living out these beautiful attitudes will lead to future blessing helps us to want to do so. As does the fact that we know that a community living out these blessings is winsome and attractive, is salt and light to the world. But that, let me suggest, is not enough. It's a very carrot and stick approach, something to attract us 
in the front and something to goad us from behind to want to live these out. But it's not enough to make these attitudes permanent values written on our hearts. It's interesting that's a very Old Testament approach. The Israelites were given a carrot and a stick to try and fulfill the law, saying there's blessings ahead if you do so, and you'll be a light to the nations if you do as well. But in the end, they also found that that wasn't enough to make these things permanent, to be written on their hearts. What's needed is something much deeper. And the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see, stands on the transition point between the Old Testament way of doing things and the New Testament way of doing things, of the Old Covenant and the New. The reason it sometimes feels like an Old Testament book, the Sermon on the Mount, is because there is elements of that. But the reason it feels completely different is because Jesus is shifting things to a new way of doing things. And that new way of doing things is centred on him. That actually these Beatitudes, first and foremost, describe him. They didn't perhaps see it at that moment. But one day they would. They would realise that the very same person that was saying these words out loud, the teacher really lived by his own teaching. That at the cross, each and every one of these Beatitudes was shown to be true of him. And he, at the centre of their community, therefore was able to exemplify and radiate these attitudes out to those around him so that the community started to live them at the very heart of who they are to the watching world. So, for example, if you look at that first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For us, we're only going to be able to be poor in spirit if we see Jesus, the one who ultimately became poor in spirit. He left the riches of heaven to become poor on earth. And at the cross, he lost it all. That eternal union with the Father, he became ultimately poor in spirit. But that we might gain it all. That we might gain that blessing of the kingdom of heaven. For us, we're only going to be able to be meek, to inhabit the earth, when we see Jesus, the meek one, who was like a lamb led to the slaughter, who didn't take up the sword, but remained silent, so that we would inherit all things with him. We're only going to be able to be merciful and receive mercy from God when we see Jesus, who took it all, who was shown no mercy, so that we might be shown infinite mercy. And we're only going to be able to endure persecution when we see Jesus, who endured the greatest persecution, taunted and jeered and crucified for his righteousness, so that we might be healed and reconciled and redeemed. Only when you see that these things first and foremost describe Jesus, can we live them out? Can we say, oh, he did that for me. Well, I want to go and do likewise. The extent to which you believe the gospel message of what Jesus did at the cross will be the extent to which your heart is utterly transformed by it so that these beautiful attitudes become yours as well. It hinges on that. It hinges on Jesus, seeing what he's done, seeing who he is, that you're able to be meek, that you're able to be merciful, 
that you're able to be a person of peace, that you're able to endure persecution because you see Christ at the cross. And of course, it will mean blessing in the future, the greatest blessing in the future. It will mean that the community around us see the same Jesus as well, that we become the salt that gives a taste of the kingdom, that purifies and preserves, that we become that light that shines outwards, that leads people to him. So I'm excited as we dig in over the next few weeks because the rest of the sermon just tells us more and more how to live these out, how to live them as community together here at St. Jude's and how to put them into practice in our individual lives. And can I commend you to come to explore and seek to be this community that Jesus describes here today. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you said that there is great blessing to be had by living in your ways. And Lord, some of them are very challenging. And I pray that you would help us. Help us to be meek. Help us to be merciful. Help us to be those who are poor in spirit, who are men and women of peace, who mourn with those who mourn. All these things that are described that you say are blessed. And ultimately, help us to see you who embodies it all. Help us to gaze upon your meekness, to see your mercy, to love your peace, to realise what you've done for us in suffering persecution. Lord, give us a view of these things. May our hearts be transformed by them, that we as a community in the church might be that salt and that light that transforms this world. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.